WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is Impact's one-hour discussion of news, events, and organizations within MSU's community. And now, this week's Exposure. It's your host Stephanie here of Exposure, and today I have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Rice Brooks. He is the author of God's Not Dead, and he's actually going to come here to MSU to talk about his beliefs. So thank you for taking some time to talk to me. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Yeah, so I my first question was, how do you go about being a man of faith in today's world? Because there's so much, I guess, controversy in general. So how do you go about doing that in your daily life? You know, Stephanie, it's really an honor to represent Jesus Christ uh, on college campuses around the world. So I think the central foundation for me is because I believe that God exists and Christ is his son and that that he is the truth, not just a truth. It just gives you confidence to stand before people and have this discussion about the evidence for God and what does the evidence say? Does it point to God? Does it point away from God? And to do that in a in a way that uh, that is respectful, but also is confident. So I'm very confident that that if something is true, then you don't have to scream and shout. You don't have to you know you don't have to be angry about it. You know if somebody you know if you know two plus two is four, that you don't have to get mad about it. If somebody disagrees, you can just be patient to say, well, I think here is something that's true. And that discussion is just really fun to have. And it's a, again, it's an honor to, to, to represent the truth in a secular setting. Absolutely. So you have quite a few books out. What inspired you to write them? Specifically, what inspired you to write God's Not Dead? Stephanie, I was, um, I've worked on campuses for years, and I started uh, noticing a phenomenon. It began, it began as kind of a rumor and a folktale people would say things like, you know, a lot of young people will lose their faith when they get to a university campus setting. And so that began to trouble me. Uh, and so one day there's a, a group of a, a Christian singing group called the Newsboys, and they had written a song called God's Not Dead. And, and mm-hmm. the one of the band guys came up into my driveway and said, listen to this new song. We're about to put this out. And I looked, I looked at the, the leader and I said, listen, we need to give young people more than just a song. I love the song, but let's give them the reasons and the evidence behind the faith. So I ended up working with the Newsboys on a music video that they did for the song, which was seen by millions and listened to by millions. It was very successful, the song was. And then I began to write this, write down what the evidence is so that in a book form, so that again, a young person would know why do what is the evidence for God? Is there evidence for God? And uh, I was telling a friend about it, and uh, who was a businessman. He said, hey, that needs to be a movie. I was describing this scenario of young people being challenged about their faith. So this is a Christian movie company came called Pure Flix and talked to me and followed me around UCLA. And I met with these screenwriters and described some of the scenarios that take place on campus. And so the movie came out and uh, went around the world. Uh, it had a you know pretty large impact, and then there was a couple of other movies that followed. So my hope was, again, to offer a student 
is, is, my, is a primary example, a student, the reasons that the Christian faith is true. And so that was the primary motivation. Absolutely. And, you know, I've actually definitely heard something similar about this, you know, um, being a person of faith myself, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you're, you're on your own by yourself, you know, for the first time. And it's definitely a challenge in its own sense. But also um, I was talking to some people and they said that there's a, some statistic out there that the biggest, like, I guess, growing religion is having no religion at all, especially in young people, which is interesting, but also kind of disheartening. Um, so how do you go about, like, combating that as well as, like, what is one of the biggest challenges you've had talking to college students? Well, yeah, those this, they that group you described show up in these in the polls uh, as the nuns, the N O N E S, where they mm-hmm. just check no religion. And sometimes the atheism would say, well, that means they're atheists, but that's not nece- that's not necessarily true. They really don't identify with traditional denominations. Yeah. They don't necessarily, young people don't necessarily want to fit into a category because they want to be respectful. And sometimes they feel that if I designate where I stand, almost like politically, if you make some kind of political statement, then you've instantly alienated, you know, the other half of the population. So I think spiritually speaking, young people um, have that kind of mindset. Not all of them. I don't want to overgeneralize, but that's where this category of the nuns comes in. Um, Yeah. You know, Stephanie, the, I think that the number one thing besides truth is that we treat one another with respect. The scripture says that we are to give a reason for the hope that's within us, yet with gentleness and respect. And you know, there's a lot of talk about tolerance, but, but really some, we, we're called to something greater than tolerance. I mean, if, yeah. if uh, someone just says, hey, I, I, those people are tolerable, that's, that's kind of almost like an insult. But um, when we love one another, when we love even as Jesus said, love your enemies. So you have to come into a setting like a college campus, uh, really not, it's not about me. It's not about whether they like me or not. It's really about my conduct toward them to be respectful, to listen, but then to offer the truth and say, here's what I believe the truth is. Here's why I believe it's true. And then trust that, uh, people will make a decision based on the evidence. So it's really not much, I wouldn't call it a challenge. Uh, I think the, I think it's an opportunity. Um, I, I've done this, for instance, uh, I read a couple of years ago, almost three now, that uh, that no one in Iceland, young people under 25, uh, they don't believe that God created the world. So if you Google atheism in Iceland, then this articles and these polls pop up that no one under 25 believes that God created the world. Well, I, when I read that, uh, I read it, uh, an article that related to that, or related that poll through the Washington Post. So I, when I read that, I called my publisher and I said, can we get my book book in Icelandic? And so they said, we only have one book in that language. So uh, long story short, my book was translated into Icelandic and I've been twice there to the University of Iceland in Reykjavik. And it's been a great opportunity. We've had uh, the nation's most vocal atheists come. Uh, It's been a very respectful dialogue, but many of them had not heard a presentation of the Christian faith from an evidential standpoint, to say, what is the evidence that God is, that the universe came into being, the the beginning of the universe? What about the origin of life? You know, evolution only tells you what happens after you get life. It can't explain the first self-replicating molecule. And so on and on. So we have several areas of evidence 
that we give the uh, evidence of morality, the question of why are we moral? Where does these morals come from? Why do we know there's something objectively right and wrong? And then ultimately, is there evidence that Jesus existed? Uh, is there evidence that he that uh, his resurrection is true? So making that case for the resurrection, making the case for the evidence for God from science, from history, from philosophy, and ultimately to say that uh, that the Scripture is an accurate record of the life and death and resurrection of Christ, and it can be trusted. So it's a, it's actually, and I don't want to say there's no, there's no, there are obviously difficult questions that you get asked, but at the end of the day, it's just, again, an honor to represent Christ in that setting. Yeah, I bet it's always interesting to talk to people with different points of view and that you can do it in this respectful manner and focus it on what you believe as is truth is, I think that's very important. Um, just to remind all of our listeners out there, this is WDBM East Lansing, and I'm talking to Dr. Rice Brooks. He is the author of God's Not Dead, and he'll be coming to campus on the 17th of April. So for people that are Christians and do believe you know, that God is real, um, how do you encourage them to remain faithful and to share their faith with others? Because that can be a difficult task, especially on college campuses. Stephanie, again, the most important thing for a Christian to understand is, is that the gospel is really true. I mean, it's an historical event. I mean, Christ was a man of history. Uh, his life is documented, uh, what he said. His resurrection is a, I believe, history points to that because he was executed by Pontius Pilate. Uh, his tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. And Christianity started in the very place where it would have been easiest to disprove in Jerusalem uh, three days later. You know, Stephanie, there's a, a Michigan State alumni uh, named Gary Habermas, an alumnus uh, who uh, was losing his faith in Michigan State back in the 70s. And he went to the doctoral committee there and he said, I'm, I want to write on the resurrection of Christ. And they said, uh, OK, you can do that. Uh, they said, just one condition, don't come back and tell us that Jesus was raised from the dead because the Bible says so. And he said, how long does this have to be? They said 200 pages. It ended up being 350 pages. Oh, wow. Gary Habermas is one of two, two, two people in the world that are considered the leading experts on the resurrection. And he's uh, right there from Michigan State. But he coined the phrase, the minimal facts. And what he teaches is that there are facts of history about Jesus that even skeptics will acknowledge are true. And so the question is, here are the facts of history. What's the best explanation of those facts? And really, that's what I hope Christians will come away with, is that, is that history points to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so what we have is not private truth. It's public truth. Mm -hmm. This is because it happened in history, it should be discussed as an historical event. And that's the basis of our faith. The scripture says, if Christ has not been raised, uh, then your faith is in vain. And so really, Christianity is the only religion that basically says, if this one thing was not true, then the whole thing is false. So that's what I hope Christians will come away with, is the truth of the Christian faith and the evidence uh, for that truth. So very, very excited to be there in Michigan State. I know the campus is on is it, you know, everybody's excited about sports uh, at this season, but uh, hopefully 
by the time we get there, the obviously the final four will be over, and it'll be a you know a surge of interest in spiritual things. We hope. Yeah, that would be really beneficial for you guys as well as for students just to be able to discuss these topics. Um, I think something I wanted to touch on too is you know there besides knowing that God is real and that this is a truth. Um, how do you think Christians can take that truth and, you know, constantly being applying it to their life and not just being like, this is something I believe in, but physically showing it in everything that they do, especially on a college campus? Well, the good news is, is that, I mean, when it, when it comes to the creator, you realize that God is the source of all knowledge. When you really grasp that he is the creator of the molecule of the DNA molecule of, uh, he fine-tuned the universe from the very beginning of the universe, 13.7 billion years ago. The universe had a beginning. The laws of physics were fine-tuned. So it's like, hey, if you've got a universe starter kit, how much gravity can you put in it? And so if you could kind of imagine each of these laws like gravity and entropy, they all have these little knobs, so to speak, but they have to be set exactly. Like if you've got a four-digit bike lock and you've got to unlock your bike lock, you know, how hard it would be just to guess those four digits. Well, what if you've got a bike lock that's like, you know, a trillion options, and you've got to get it right on the right spot? Um, when you realize that this is the God of creation, he's the God of detail, then you, you approach every subject, every issue of life, with the smartest, wisest person in existence as your friend, and, you know, willing to give you advice, willing to give you wisdom, willing to give you instruction. So whether you're in the chemistry department, the biology department, a physicist, in fact, I will bring with me Dr. Michael Gillen. Dr. Michael Gillen will be kind of my uh, co-speaker at this event. Dr. Gillen taught physics at Harvard for 10 years, and he was a science editor for ABC News for 14 and so he is, you know, I think he has three Emmy Awards. So he is, this man I'm bringing to campus is really phenomenal. I'm honored that he goes with me around the world. Uh, I have several people like him. Like last night, I had Dr. Ming Wang, who's a Harvard doctor, with me on a campus here in Tennessee. And um, the Dr. Gillen will be with me at Michigan State on the 17th of April. He is a fantastic speaker. Uh, again, he has, and he has a Ph.D. in physics, math, and astronomy. Yeah, so he comes so from a very scientific point of view. No, 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 he is, but he's also a person of faith, so he yeah. doesn't see any conflict in his faith. You see, Stephanie, you know, people confuse this. You know, just because I know how something works doesn't mean that there was no agency that brought it about. So there's no conflict between, uh, you know, having an iPhone and knowing how it works and whether Steve Jobs ever existed. So people confuse mechanism and agency. And science, we want to know how the world works. But also there is an author, there's an agent that brought it into existence. And that's where I believe that people come on the 17th, come to the event, and uh, listen to what we have to say. And then just say, are you, as I say everywhere, are you willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads, regardless of the implications? So we hope it's going to be a, an inspiring time. It'll it'll be a time of kind of helping to get that dialogue going in a respectful way between unbelievers and believers. And uh, so thank you so much for helping promote it and get the word out. Yeah, absolutely. I do like to talk about things that go are going on around campus so all of our students and, you know, people around the community can go to these events and have a better understanding of our world around us. So can you talk a little bit about what's – What's specifically going to happen at Aries' event on the 17th? 
Our presentation is a multimedia presentation. So when students come in or people from the community, whoever chooses to come, uh, they will get, uh, you know, just I'll go through four major areas of evidence and uh, they'll see movie clips and uh, funny clips and, uh, you know, and different things that will illustrate uh, what we're talking about in terms of what does evidence for God look like? You know, when you ask a person and about God and they say, well, there's no evidence for God, then I respond and say, well, what ex- evidence would you accept? And many people have never stopped to ponder what evidence looks like. But again, if you're looking, uh, if you were looking for Steve Jobs, you wouldn't have found him by breaking down the iPhone. So what we're looking for is the evidence of an intelligent mind behind the universe. And so we look at the same set of evidences that any scientist or philosopher looks at or historian and ask the question, does this point to God or away from God? Uh, after probably a 90-minute presentation, uh, we'll have a Q&A, and sometimes that's lasted longer than the event. I mean, we give people a chance to leave if they'd like, give a little break. Um, and then at the end, then we reconvene and have a Q&A time. So like Arizona State University just a few weeks ago, it was, I think, I think they finally just had to kick us out of the, of the hall because students just wanted to talk. They wanted to ask their questions. They wanted to interact. So we're there to, to serve and to help and to listen and to do our best to give answers that we hope will be helpful. So that's kind of the overview. Absolutely. And if students do have questions at- if it goes past the time, is there ways that they can contact you or other resources to learn more about all yes, of this? Yes, we do. We have, we have, we'll, I don't want to give away all my surprises, but we have a special <laughs> gift for every student that attends. And we have all kinds of support uh, apps and things because we do, whether if they go to a Christian group, we're sure, surely wanting to encourage them to be faithful to, to that group and to, to learn. But we also help those Christian groups because many times their Christian groups are overwhelmed with the questions and wanting to get the resources to help them. If students are not in any kind of Christian group or they're still kind of in an undecided state, then we, we have ways to keep in contact with them so that they can access on an ongoing, in an ongoing way uh, some of the questions, some of the answers to the questions that uh, they may have. So we, once we show up, we don't want to just leave town. We want to continue to dialogue with them in any way we can. So, yes, there's tons of support, uh, tons of ways that we support the students after we've left the campus. Well, that's great. And what is one of the biggest things that you've learned, possibly even from your audiences or on this journey of writing a book and then the movie and then going to all of these presentations? Oh, Stephanie, I've got such a long list of things I've learned. Uh, Number one, I've learned how much I don't know. Uh, And that's one of the, you know, anytime you get into an area of, you know, talking about all of these disciplines from science, from physics, astronomy, and history and philosophy, you come into into dialogues uh, with with a much more humble position. And I I think that uh, humility is a great attribute for all of us and to to be in a position of humility to present your beliefs to present what you believe is the evidence in a respectful way but i've also learned that if you approach it that way there's just such a great dialogue i mean we had a young atheist that came in iceland and i'll I'll show this at the event because we got him on camera and he said you know thank you for coming this was such a kind act that you would come to us and present your evidence and he was just 
grateful that we showed up and that we gave our presentation. We gave them a chance to respond. And I think that um, there, there shouldn't be this huge divide like there is in the political landscape. If there's any place where there can be a dialogue that is that is you know filled with respect and filled with honoring one another, it's in this dialogue of faith and science and different worldviews. So I'm I'm nonetheless committed to my beliefs, and so I don't think I honor anybody else by coming in and saying, oh, well, you disagree with me, so I'm going to act like I don't have any beliefs. No, I'm not letting go of my beliefs. Mm-hmm. It's not by me compromising, but it's just a, ma- a mindset of presenting our truth in a way that is respectful and yet at the same time, you know, confident that truth is truth and truth will prevail. You know, C.S. Lewis basically said, and Charles Spurgeon echoed something similar, that, you know, you don't have to necessarily defend truth. It's like a lion, just let it go, it can defend itself. So anyway, I look forward, Stephanie, to being there on campus. Thank you for airing this program. And whoever's listening to this, whatever faith they have, or if they're struggling with their faith, uh, we hope that if they're, a, if they're a believer, they'll be strengthened. If they're a seeker, that they'll get some questions answered. But if they're a a committed unbeliever that they'll find this to be a stimulating dialogue uh, with people that care about them and want to hear what they have to say, but also want to present the case for God. And that's what we'll do on April 17th at the Kellogg Center. Yeah, I'm really grateful that we have the opportunity as students to go to this and, you know, have these questions and learn more. And it's in a very safe, non-judgmental environment. So thank you for putting this on again. It is on the 17th at 7 p.m. at the Kellogg Center. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us, Dr. Brooks. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you very much. We look forward to meeting you face-to-face. Absolutely. All right. See ya. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we're here with Claire Hoffman. Claire, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm a PhD student here at Michigan State University in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, where I study human carnivore conflict. So you mentioned human carnivore conflict. Mm -hmm. Which carnivores in particular are you interested in? So my primary area of interest is in African carnivores, so mostly lions, leopards, and hyenas, with a few jackals thrown in every now and then. Do you look at all of these together or separately? Um, So I'm actually pretty interested in the interaction between them. So all of them together, all of those carnivores tend to eat livestock, which is what my research is mostly on. And the way that they eat livestock together and separately and how they influence the way that the other carnivores attack livestock is one of the primary things that I'm interested in. So in the past, a lot of our guests would look at a lot of microscopic details of different problems that we didn't understand that well. But it sounds like here you're actually going outwards and looking at a much larger issue where you're looking at not only just one carnivore, but a whole, how they all interact with each other. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, I'm really interested in the big picture output. 
So what are we looking at when you take all of the different carnivore species, all of the different wild prey species like zebras and antelope, and then all of the humans and all of their livestock species that they have so that how all of that together works as a system. But I do actually collect my data at a really fine scale. So we are looking at collecting information um, kind of at a point-by-point basis, looking specifically with individual motion-activated cameras, but then putting it all together to look at the big picture, kind of knitting it together almost like a quilt. We take little bits and pieces from different places, put them together and see what the whole thing looks like from afar. All right, I have so many questions. Uh, You guys look at, to clarify, you guys look at multiple carnivores and see their interactions with the livestock, but you're looking at it in one location. And I'm wondering, what location are you guys focused on? Like, how did you figure out that location? Is it somewhere where all of these herds populate? And do you tag these herds or something? Yeah, so our location is determined based on the communities that we're working with that experience the most conflict with carnivores. So my research is currently located in Kenya in an area called Laikipia, which is in the central um, part of Kenya. And we have four different communities that we work in. And so we went directly to the community elders and asked them which households, which livestock corrals, which families, I guess you could say, um, have experienced the most conflict with carnivores, which ones have lost the most livestock. And those are the places where we decided to situate our study. With the goal being that the information we discover, the, the results that we come up with, are actually going to be applicable to the places where they are most needed. So why did you pick this particular area to study? Is it that there's a lot of carnivores going into this area specifically to eat the livestock that we're raising here? Or were they already coming there before we introduced livestock into that environment? So they were there long before what we would consider to be kind of modern times. But the livestock have also been there pretty much forever. So the the conflict that we're seeing is between traditional communities and I guess what you would maybe call traditional carnivores, carnivores that have been there forever. The rate at which we're seeing conflict between them has increased dramatically. And that's how we picked our locations, was areas where you see these spikes of conflict, these spikes of um, livestock loss by large carnivores. And the reason that we have it in some areas and not others um, has to do with a whole bunch of different factors, things like drought, um, areas that get less rain. So you have um, more livestock and wild prey trying to eat the same grasses, which brings in different, um, brings the carnivores in, they're following wild prey, and then they happen to see a cow, which is a lot easier to attack, and they tend to go for that. But we're also interested in this area because there's been a pretty dramatic increase in human populations. So the human populations are growing, so the number of livestock that they're keeping are growing, and they're spreading out. So they're spreading out, um, the community centers are expanding, and we're getting more and more overlap between human areas and the areas where wild carnivores live. And all of that together is creating these kind of what we call hot spots of conflict. And then out of all of these different mediating animals, which one did you find the most interesting and which one is having the largest impact on these human carnivore conflicts? So we see the most conflict over, well, I guess I'd say we have two different ways to look at that. So the first would be the species of carnivore that actually eats the most livestock. 
And the second would be the species of carnivore that attracts the most attention for eating livestock. The first would be a hyena. Hyenas eat, um, in some areas, up to about 80% of the livestock that are taken. The second would probably be lions because they have such cultural significance and people all around the world really love lions. You get a lot of external um, international research teams and conservation NGOs coming in and placing emphasis on lions, even though they don't actually eat the most livestock. So from just a pure um, numbers perspective, I would say hyenas we see the most interest in. From uh, an overall conflict perspective, I would say probably lions. How do you guys clarify to people that lions are not the ones attacking most of these livestock? That is a very difficult question to answer, actually, because it depends on which people you're trying to talk to. So if we are trying to talk about the conflict to the people that are actually experiencing it, so the community members, they already know. They are very aware of which carnivores are eating their livestock. And they are really looking from us, they're looking for assistance with limiting the number of livestock that they lose from hyenas mostly. If you're trying to talk to the people who tend to fund research and who are interested in supporting conservation, it becomes a much more difficult question because we have to try to convince them that actually in order to save lions, we really have to reduce overall rates of conflict. We have to reduce the amount of conflict that we're seeing in those communities as a whole, which means that we actually have to focus our research efforts on something other than the species that they really want to focus on. And in order to do that, we have to be pretty strategic about the papers we write, um, the type of outreach that we do to drum up interest in in looking big picture as opposed to just fine scale. Whenever you guys are looking at these interactions and the conflict, do you guys actually interfere with it? Do you try to create solutions or try to minimize that conflict? Is, are, or are you guys just observing it and reporting it? A little bit of both, actually. So to start off with, we have to establish a baseline. Before you can see what is working and what is effective, we need to know what's happening without any sort of intervention. So we've started doing our research where we're just trying to put up, collect some data about what's going on as is. And then as the project develops and as we build in more complexity to it, we will actually start intervening. We'll start putting out things that we think might be effective at deterring carnivore. So things like chain link fences, um, motion-activated lights, anything that might scare a carnivore away. And then we will look at how the rates of conflict that we see, the numbers of livestock that are attacked or lost, change depending on which interventions and which deterrents we've used. Now, would you say that the goal of this research project is to help create more of a deterrence program or a coexistence program with humans and carnivores? I'd say they're one and the same, really. In order, well, okay, so as some background, the number one cause of conflict between humans and large carnivores pretty much everywhere in the world is livestock loss. So if you can reduce the number of livestock that are killed, then you can reduce conflict. So what we really need to do, what we're really trying to do here is effectively deter carnivores so that there is less conflict resulting from the loss of livestock. Do you believe that we could coexist with these carnivores? Do the carnivores ever attack humans? 
yes, I do really think that there there are some solutions out there that we can find a way to make sharing life um, sharing landscapes with these large carnivores sustainable long term. And the reality is that that people actually have, for the most part, been coexisting with large carnivores all around the world for most of human history. The lack of coexistence is a pretty recent thing. Um, and to answer your second question, uh, almost rarely do we actually see humans get attacked by large carnivores. There are some instance of it, instances of it, of course. If you give a hungry carnivore an easy access to an easy meal, it's probably going to take it. But for the most part, it's very, very rare to see carnivores that actively seek out humans as prey. It, it tends to be other sources of prey that are, are causing the problem there. So here's an interesting segue to take it. <laughs> what role do you think climate change has in regards to these human conflict with carnivores? Is it becoming more difficult for these carnivores to find other prey that it's making it easier to just go after the livestock? Or what do you think? So there actually is some really interesting research out there about that specific thing. Um, and there's actually some really interesting research about that at my study site. So I can I can speak to this pretty well. One aspect of climate change that we don't really talk about that much, but is a pretty significant effect of it, is increased drought. So particularly in areas that already experience drought, such as Central and Eastern Africa, having increased drought, longer drought, less water, we tend to see livestock getting pushed into areas um, where we have more wild prey. And we see wild prey getting pushed into areas where we have more livestock. They're all going for the same water sources. So if the only water source is, say, a trough on a farmer's land or on a wildlife conservancy, then all of the different prey are going to congregate around that one water source. And then you're going to get the carnivores that follow all of that prey to that one water source. And then once they get there, they make a decision about what type of prey is going to be easiest for them to catch and give them the most output. And that often is domestic prey because they're not as good at evading predators. So we do actually see a pretty substantial increase in conflict between humans and large carnivores in areas and times when we're starting to see things like drought that are a direct result of climate change. Another interesting question would be, how are the offspring of these carnivores adapting to these easier livestock targets? Because as these conflicts grow more and more, a lot of these offspring are going to be trained to understand that livestock is going to be the easier prey to go after. And what effects do you think that will have? I'm not sure we can really say yet, but it is definitely something that people are concerned about long-term. Because as you mentioned, a big part of carnivore behavior is taught. So these small baby lions, they learn how to hunt from their parents. So if their parents have learned that the easiest access to prey comes from stalking something like a goat or a cow, then that's what the next generation of lions are going to think is the best access to food. So just off the top of my head, I would guess that it's one of those things that would would snowball. So the more livestock loss we see in this generation, the more there's going to be in the next generation and the next, and that it would kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger as we go on. But I don't know. I guess if we could find some way to, to stop that cycle, 
pretty soon, then we might be able to turn it around a bit. But it's definitely something we're trying to keep an eye on. So it seems pretty imperative that this is a issue that we should get under control. Yeah, absolutely. And not only from the human perspective, but also from the wildlife perspective. And that most of these carnivores are either endangered or threatened with declining populations, meaning they are right on the verge of becoming endangered. And one of the most common reactions to losing livestock is that the livestock owners go out and kill carnivores in retaliation. So they either try to find the one that was specifically responsible for killing their cow, or they'll just go out and they'll try to kill whichever one is closest, whichever one they find first, or they'll put out poisoned carcasses, which can take out an entire pride of lions. So we see pretty significant impacts on the carnivore populations from this conflict as well. And we're very much at a tipping point with a lot of those populations that if we can't slow that decline pretty soon, then we might be kind of over the point at which we might be able to reverse that pattern. Is it illegal for these farmers to be putting out poison carcasses or things like that? It depends where you are. Um, In most places, yes, it is. But there isn't much in the way of government oversight that could really prevent it or put restrictions on what is what types of poisons are accessible and, and those types of things. So as a general rule, no, it's not allowed, but it's still very, very common. Thanks for sharing all of your research with us, Claire. I thought this was really motivating and inspiring, but I was wondering what inspired you to get into this research? So it's actually kind of a funny story in that I am one of those weird people who has literally known their entire life what they wanted to do. As a matter of fact, my parents were just moving a couple of years ago and we were going through all the old boxes that my mom had saved of my school projects. And we quite literally found one from when I was six years old. It was a research project I did on lions. And we had to ask these questions about our our study species or whatever. And one of my questions was, when did the lions start disappearing? And the other one was, how can people start saving lions? So literally from since before I can remember, this is what I wanted to do. And I'm trying to be, I've tried to work my way towards the point I'm at now for quite some time. I've done research on a whole bunch of different species, working my way up the food train from squirrels now up to lynx and wolves and lions. And there's something about East Africa that kind of got under my skin when I was a little kid, probably watching David Attenborough videos or something. And um, it's just been there ever since. You mentioned that you had done multiple things to help you get to where you're at right now. What were some of those things other than the research with the squirrels and the lynxes? So one thing that I have found incredibly useful and beneficial in my career getting to this point was developing a a bit of a personal network. So I've tried to be a bit strategic about who I make opportunities to meet and develop personal relationships with. Not just, I guess... Beyond just the the benefit professionally, but I found that the best advice about where to go, what to focus on, what skills to develop comes from somewhat personal conversations. So I've tried to really develop a a personal network um, and meet as many cool wildlife people as I can as I've gone along. So when you're not in the jungle, what do you (laughs) like to do? What do I like to do? I, I guess... I'm a pretty standard student in that I watch a lot of videos, although my videos tend to be nature-oriented, a lot of David Attenborough still in my life. I also have tried to build in that network 
into my personal life here at MSU. So I've actually started a group on campus called the Women in Nature Network that is um, we're an individual, a local chapter of an international organization. And our goal is to provide opportunities for networking and skill building for women who are in natural resource-based disciplines. And then we try to provide opportunities for them to connect with the women in the other chapters, which are located in places like Mexico and Guyana and India and Switzerland and really all over the world. So that has become actually a huge part of my life. I spend a lot of time trying to organize events, connect with people, make that group grow and kind of be self-sustaining. I think it really is a great group. I went to one of their dinners last semester and it was a wonderful group of ladies, honestly. Well, we were glad that you were there. <laughs> Claire, I was wondering, do you have any advice for women who might be interested in getting into science? I do, and it goes back to this thing that I have talked about a lot, and that's networking. My number one piece of advice is just to seek out conversations. That I have yet to meet a single person in this field who wasn't really, really excited to talk to somebody who was really, really excited about the things that they love. And it can be pretty awkward to try to reach out to people that you don't know, send them an email and ask if they'd be willing to give up a little bit of their precious time to talk to you. But again, I have yet to have anybody say no to me. And that has been the most useful and the most inspirational thing to me is just making time for personal conversations. And every person you talk to, ask if they have two or three more people that they can put you in contact with and you just build your network and develop conversations as you go. Earlier you mentioned that you knew what you wanted to do from early on as a child up until now. What are your plans for when you finish your doctorate? Are there plans of possibly just moving to East Africa permanently? And do you want to work with lions for the rest of your life? You know, that's something that I feel like I'm still figuring out. So I'm actually from the West Coast. I grew up in Washington, and I would have this little hope that someday I might be able to get back out towards the West. Not that Michigan isn't wonderful, but I do miss my mountains. But I don't know exactly what direction I'm going to go after I come out of my Ph.D., I feel like my perspective on what would be the most valuable contribution to wildlife conservation has changed pretty dramatically already in the couple of years that I've been here. And I have a feeling it will continue to change as I go through. Right now, my I'm feeling pretty drawn towards science communication as opposed to the research itself. I do feel like there's a lot of knowledge out there already about what we need to do to be able to conserve large carnivores and minimize the amount of conflict that they're experiencing with humans. What seems to be lacking is an effective communication of that knowledge in a way that helps people to engage with it and helps that knowledge actually be effectively used to minimize conflict. They're like it kind of gets trapped in this academic bubble. So I think it would be a pretty amazing place to be as a professional, to be almost a bridge between academia and conservation and other stakeholders and and the public as a whole, which tends to get pretty excited about things like wildlife conservation, but doesn't really know what to do with that excitement. So for now, I'm trying to work myself towards a science communication type position where I could use my knowledge as a researcher, as a scientist to develop excitement about 
a conservation action and, and try to make sure that, that what we're learning on the ground is being applied in a way that can then go back and have an impact on what, what's happening on the ground as well. That's really important work that you're planning on doing for not only humans, but also the rest of the animal world as well. Thank you for joining us today, Claire. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.